Hey everybody, this is Armando Torres, and you're listening to the show before the show. And I'm Paige Wesley. And with us we have... Robert Timothy. Yay! Yay! Woohoo! We've got another fucking wildly great episode for you. I This series does not stop. It is just nonstop stupidity, and I am so in love with it. You were so right, Paige, that this is like the most crime-filled, stupid series we could have ever picked to do. I, I cannot tell you how much fun this has been to research. Because don't get me wrong, bad stuff happens, people are mistreated, all the typical cult stuff is there, but also there's just this backdrop of unbridled madness that I love. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, And I'm having so much fun, and we are joined by bomb expert and uh, radical dude himself, but like more like skateboard radical, uh, Bobby, and I'm so glad that you're here, bud. Thank you. I'm just here, like, spinning nunchucks, eating a piece of pizza. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> Hanging out with a rat in a bathrobe. Don't ask about it. It's yeah. fine. Yeah, it's Chuck E. Cheese's cousin, James Cheese. Uh, James Cheese. <laughs> James uh, Funtertainment Cheese. <laughs> James F. Cheese, and the F is for Funtertainment. Um, yeah, we, uh, we have got a great episode and I can't wait for you to hear it before we start, uh, go check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash cult podcast. Uh, you can also download, uh, the rooster teeth app, uh, cockadoodle do, um, and go to roosterteeth.com to listen to the show and a bunch of other really fun stuff as well. Uh, yeah, I think that does it. So without any further ado, Let's get into the show. Hello. 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 (laughs) You sound like a druid. I love it. (laughs) Don't drink the Kool-Aid. For the purposes of this podcast, we define a cult as organizations that rally behind an entity or leader who espouse beliefs outside the norm. Organizations that require physical or monetary sacrifice as a condition of membership. Organizations in which the doctrines followed by the leaders are different than that of the followers. Organizations in which isolation is encouraged either by commune living or by a policy of disconnection from outside relationships. And organizations that actively recruit new members. All cults might have some or all of these traits. And as always, these are our opinions. Thank you for tuning into Cult Podcast. I'm Paige Wesley. And I'm Armando Torres. And with us we have Robert Timothy. Yay! Yay! Woohoo! <laughs> Normally we have guests that yay themselves. I don't think we've ever had somebody that's woohooed themselves, and I'm really happy about that. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm upset that the camera was on for it, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Robert Timothy has been convicted of woohooing himself live on camera. <laughs> I was just going to the bathroom. <laughs> Speaking of which, I, and I didn't bring this up last time because most of our sources last time were a lot of the older articles from uh, the 1970s. This time we're getting into a lot more of what's covered in the documentary. And there's a book written by Jeffrey Tubin about Patty Hearst that I did not include in sources, but he is featured in the documentary. The reason I didn't include it is I heartily disagree with him, and so do a lot of other people, including Mm. Patricia Hearst. So uh, I didn't include it. But I did think it was interesting that I was like, man, now we mostly know this guy for masturbating on a Zoom call. (laughs) 
What a world. <laughs> what a world. God. Yes. It is it is going to be a wild week. This is week 2 of the Symbionese Liberation Army and uh, are we ready to dive into sources? Let's get right into it. Absolutely. So ready. I'm so excited. That first episode already blew my mind. I can't wait to see how many <laughs> broken arms and bombs there are oh in this God, one. Yes. I'm so ready um, for more. Definitely broken arms. Fewer bombs in this oh. episode. Episode three, a lot of bombs. Nice. Um, wow. So let's get into sources. Number one, we do have The Radical Story of Patty Hearst, which is a CNN documentary series. I will be talking a little bit in this episode particularly about how the documentary is, I would say, a little misogynist. We do. I like it because we get a lot of different points of view from a lot of different sides, which helps kind of corroborate pieces of the story. Mm-hmm. But... There are some things that they cover in this documentary in a way that I find kind of irresponsible. So we're going to talk about it when we get to it. Okay. Yeah. Well, another irresponsible thing they did was calling it the radical story of Patty Hirsch. <laughs> radical. A picture of her doing a kickflip on the front. Fuck yeah. There, there's some pretty radical pictures of her that mostly come in in episode three. Yeah. Uh, but Well, like her like fucking hitting a sick dab. No, like like her like her with a semi-automatic just casing a bank. <laughs> Whoa! That, okay, you know what? I take it all back. Radical, the radical story of Patty Hearst is the perfect title. Uh, we then have a, a Britannica article on the Symbionese Liberation Army written by Laura Lambert, a PBS article called The Rise and the Fall of the Symbionese Liberation Army. We have blackpass.org, the Symbionese Liberation Army by Weston W. Cooper. We have the FBI government files on Patricia Campbell Hearst, also known as Patty Hearst. We have a Slate article from 2002, What is the Symbionese Liberation Army? We have Gregory Garth Cummings' dissertation, The End of an Era, The Rise and Fall of the, Symbion- of the Symbionese Liberation Army and the Fall of the New Left. I know his name is hilarious. <laughs> but Paige, I Paige, I don't think you get it because it's a very nuanced joke. It's <laughs> coming. Sure. Yeah, yeah, it's one of your six. <laughs> it's like he's coming. I got it. Bobby, did you get it? It's like he's coming. Party on, Wayne. <laughs> Party on, Garth coming. Uh, so we then have the Danville Register, uh, the article from April 14th, 1974. Patty Hearst's chief captor emerges as a man capable of love and violence. And then we have the New York Times article, uh, Sinku, which, by the way, it's spelled like C-I-N-Q-U-E, where you would think it would be like Chinque, but mm-hmm. it's Sinku, and that's the name that DeFreeze adopts for himself hmm. later on. Uh, a dropout who has been in constant trouble. We have People Magazine from April 29th, 1974. Uh, the Man, the Mystery Behind the SLA t- Terror. And then we have a new source for this episode, interexchange.org, The History, Symbols, and Principles of Kwanzaa. Are you ready? Yes. So Super ready. Super ready. All right. So when we left off last week, Donald DeFries had just killed Marcus Foster and the group had made their intentions known and called themselves the Symbionese Liberation Army. But to start our episode today, we're actually going to take a short trip back in time, specifically to February 20th, 1954, when Patricia Campbell Hearst was born. Patricia Hearst's grandfather, William Randolph Hearst, created literally a media monolith 
including like movies, newspaper, magazines, everything. And her great grandmother was a philanthropist. So they just had ass loads of money. Their name is on tons of buildings, tons of colleges, tons of everything. And one of the other things that they were hugely known for was anti-communism since even before World War II. So they are essentially conservatism's wet dream. Wow. They they are the American dream, if you want to think about it, where they're the uber rich, they're American royalty. They literally built a castle in the middle of California. That's how much royalty they are. And the movie Citizen Kane is about him. Wow. So like that's how like that's he is famous enough to have had a movie made about him in his lifetime while he was still alive and hated it. Where he was just like, <laughs> How dare you? How dare you make this movie about me? As he slowly caressed a sled, just like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, Uh, in his giant palace with a huge reflecting pool, (laughs) which you can go visit if you want to. It's it's, you know, on the coast if as you make your way up the coast i'm so fucking stupid that i just realized a reflecting pool means like you go sit by it and reflect like on things like you think because i i use i i always thought reflecting pool meant like it reflects you like you see your reflection and i was like wait that's all water I, I don't know. I don't know that 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 you're wrong the first time. I think you yeah. might have been right the first time there. Yeah. No, it is the latter. It's that's why it's usually positioned around statues or p- parts of buildings to kind of make them look bigger oh. or to make them look different in kind of a different way. So as you look across the reflecting pool, it has kind of damn. A different effect. Well, you know what? Now I'm flipping it over. That's stupid. All pools are reflecting pools. That's how water works. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. Okay, well, um, <laughs> sometimes, you know what? Sometimes reality is the stupidest answer. <laughs> um, one of the many places they had donated to, and I want to stress tons of different places, but one of the many places they donated to was UC Berkeley and specifically mm-hmm. the founding of their archaeology yes. department. Wow. And I, just to jump in here real quick, they d- actually funded a bunch of archaeological expeditions. And now, so I work as an archaeologist here in uh, San Diego now, and a lot of the original stuff that happened in the early 1900s where we set out these expeditions to California native groups and the Harrington Expedition and a bunch of the other ones where we get pictures and documents and part of languages for what are now lost tribes uh, comes from things that were funded by Phoebe Hearst. And so I actually, on a fairly regular basis, go through documents that are about 100 years old that describe some of the areas here in San Diego and the natives around here that are literally funded through the Phoebe Hearst uh, Trust and through their funding that went through Berkeley and some of the other stuff. So like, even though it's it seems weird and like from antiquity, the stuff that they did, and some of it is arguable in terms of ethics because they went around and collected like a quarter million artifacts that weren't theirs and then took them back to Berkeley, but some of which are, are, are kind of ethically ambiguous. I still deal with like the site forms and stuff that are the relics of her funding this massive archaeological expedition and department in Berkeley 100 years ago. Wow. That's going to be kind of the name of the game today uh, when we talk about the Hearsts, where you don't want to like them. Because yeah. they're they're kind of they're they're mildly evil for sure, sure. Um, but also 
we end up fighting this public perception of them as America's uber rich elite mm-hmm. versus the reality. And it comes into play when we deal with their daughter and and how she ends up getting treated and their response to it. And they don't always make the right decisions. They're not always great people. But there are certain parts of this story where you truly feel for them. And it, and it is a, a little, I find myself torn where I'm just like, I know they're kind of bad, but also, damn, this must have been brutal yeah. for them. So it's, but the same thing, There, there's a lot of, the story deals with a lot of gray areas of like, on one hand this, but on the other hand this, and then trying to reconcile those facts into how and what happened is tough yeah so i mean already it sounds like they they contributed a lot to the red scare which was an absolutely terrible thing in (laughs) american history but then they also like gave us uh, a whole new crop of or helped a whole new crop of archaeologists in archaeology school which i figure like is half (laughs) dusting off bones with a toothbrush class and then half how to use a whip and get the perfect fedora for yourself well, you forgot about the part where we enslave a young Asian boy and make him drive us around everywhere. Oh, yeah. Or that is, that's graduate level. Yeah. Bobby, as we call it now, interns. <laughs> yeah. Or the part where you learn to write backwards on your eyelids so you can tell your hot professors how hot you think they are. Paige, I think that's actually a really good point is like it's a mixture of like, are they doing something really good or really bad? Like I mentioned, they collected a whole bunch of native Californian artifacts. And so some of the stuff, like some of the knowledge that I learned in school comes directly from the collections and the processes that that they put out that that Phoebe Hearst literally funded. The the museum, by the way, the Archaeology Museum at Berkeley is the Phoebe Hearst Archaeology Museum. and, And so is the collection. But also, like, we are still trying to repatriate a bunch of what we call NAGPRA artifacts, like uh, uh, funerary artifacts and bones and stuff mm-hmm. to Native American tribes because they kind of just went and stole them. Like, they kind of just went and they're like, oh, look, someone's dead grandfather. Let's let's dig them up and take them back to Berkeley. Oh, that's how you get a horror movie. That's yeah. the beginning of every scary movie. I don't know if you know, but Night at the Museum is based on the museum. <laughs> <laughs> That makes a lot of sense. Two generations, both of them get a Citizen Kane. <laughs> so part of you wants to be like, oh, these guys are bastards. They're going around robbing graves, which is true. But yeah. the other part is like, man, there are cultures that are literally like there are entire groups that are now gone. They're gone off the face of the earth and extinct because of other horrible things that we've done mm-hmm. that we wouldn't know anything about if it weren't for these collections. Yeah. Yeah. God. It's so weird that people like some people want to be remembered that way. Like they want a museum to honor them. And it's just like, I'm just trying to get a weed stream named after me. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Dude, we can do that. We have had this conversation where if last podcast can do it, we can do it. I think we can. Hey, if you grow weed out there, hit me up. I want to let's let's figure this out. Let me get a weed straight and we're going to figure it out. Coldpodcastshow at gmail.com. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now. Patricia, as she prefers to be called, and so I'll I'll try to honor her wishes, she doesn't like being called Patty because of, during this time, the media just, like, ran with it. And it was, 
it almost became a catchphrase as opposed to her name. So she prefers Patricia. Uh, her parents were Randolph Apperson Hurst and Catherine Wood Campbell. And while it sounds like being the granddaughter of a media magnet is super glamorous, and it is compared to our lives, it's important to remember one fact. Her father was one of a number of heirs. There were like five or six other kids. And he didn't have control of the fortunes. He didn't have control of the interests. He didn't have control over any of the inheritance. He had a stipend and he worked for one of the newspapers. But William Randolph Hearst was very careful to set up his money so that it was vested mostly in companies Mm -hmm. and that those companies had boards that controlled that money so as far as what their family actually had they had a beautiful house they had property all of their needs are taken care of but they aren't just crazy rich with liquid assets sitting around at all times that's important to remember it's gonna come into play later Additionally, because they were not crazy rich, or at least by their estimation, not crazy rich, they didn't think it was necessary to take security measures for their children. That's going to factor in later, too. They are richer than we will probably ever be. But to them, the idea that someone might target them for that money seemed outlandish it had never really happened before i guess they forgot about the Lindbergh baby true but also if you're if you're not expecting outrageous bullshit wait till you meet donald defreeze the most outlandish i've ever fucking heard of who killed a guy over identification cards absolutely absolutely they they are about to come up against a force that most people will never understand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Patricia, as she was growing up, was uh, by a lot of accounts a bit of a tomboy. She wasn't super interested in a lot of the society things her mother wanted to do. So her mother uh, was not from a societal like elite family but she was from like a moderately comfortable family in Georgia she was a southern belle Mm -hmm. and she had married into the family and quickly and happily adapted to socialite life she was very happy to be there Patricia not so much she's the she's the Prince Harry of this situation if you want to Mm -hmm. think of it that way where she wasn't super interested in balls or galas (laughs) or function I mean she is straight so i guess those balls i don't know i don't know if straight women are ever attracted to balls i don't think that's a part on the list that people are like yeah give me some of that mana you just (laughs) revealed that you have particularly ugly balls if you haven't used those to lure a woman in you don't know what you're doing yet you're just slipping them out of your fly yeah absolutely girl what up Please don't call the police. I'm just here on the corner. Yeah, anyway. Maybe, this is, I didn't, come on. This isn't me. I keep my balls barely tucked away inside of my jeans. <laughs> anyway, she wasn't interested in galas or functions or all of the socialite things her mother wanted to do. 
And in fact, she wasn't interested in much of anything her mom wanted her to do. She went to multiple, they call them convent schools, but like Mm. private Catholic schools. Uh, Hated them, got kicked out of a few of them. Uh, But when she was enrolled in Crystal Springs School for Girls, something finally stuck. And now... I want to be very, very clear. We are entering into a section of this episode that is going to get very yikes. Um, And it's a section of the episode that if you go to watch that CNN documentary, I think they cover this very badly. Um, Patricia was 16 at the time. And as she was attending the school, she took a bit of a liking to her math teacher, a 23-year-old man named Stephen Weed. Now... In the documentary, yes, I know his name is Stephen Weed, Armando. Everything is so cool. I don't want to like it, but I do. Everyone's name is great in this story. It's all cum and balls and weed. It's fucking made for me, Paige. (laughs) Will somebody out there who grows weed please name something Armando's Stephen Weed so that we can finally (laughs) solve both of these? Now, in the documentary... Stephen claims that she, Patricia, is the one who pursued him. But I'm going to argue that as an adult, it's kind of your job to shut that shit down. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And the documentary does not seem to see this as problematic. (laughs) But I super do. (laughs) When you're Um, talking about a 16-year-old, quote-unquote, pursuing a grown-ass man, like a 23-year-old. Thank you. That's like when somebody's like, oh, that toddler was pursuing a handgun in my room. It's like, no, you left a loaded (laughs) handgun around a toddler, you asshole. He wasn't pursuing anything. He's three. Here's the thing. I've been a 16-year-old girl. I think I can speak for some experience. There are definitely times when I had crushes on people older than me and and problematically older than me. Right. Uh, It is that person's responsibility as an adult with sounder mind than me as a 16-year-old to be like, this is not going to happen. Yes! I, I need to let you down as easily as possible and probably create a situation in which we don't see each other that often (laughs) like whatever it is that i need to do somebody should have told that to sigourney weaver when i was a child what (laughs) yeah i was in love with sigourney weaver and she loved me back i mean she never said anything and i never met her but i could just tell from the movies i watched that she was really into me she was sending you messages yeah she'd be like get away from her you bitch and i'm just like oh To be fair, even if that did happen and, and Armando did hook up with Sigourney Weaver when he was like 13, I'd still let her slide a little bit because like she couldn't have known. She'd be like, this guy's 6'4". How would I guess that he's 13 years old? I mean, I, I'm just kind of impressed and proud that Sigourney Weaver was your teenage pull. Good for you, man. I don't, I'm into powerful women. You. I don't yes. know what it is. Pop off, sis. Yes. I love to hear this. You get I don't you probably just get raised by a single mom and you're just like, "Ooh, powerful women who know how to do stuff." Mm. Mm. Anyway, uh he did not put a stop to it. In fact, they started dating and upon graduating the school, Patricia and Steven end up moving in together as she enrolls at Berkeley. And reportedly, 
Patricia's mom didn't love it because they weren't married. Not because he was 23 and her daughter is still fully a teenager. <laughs> Uh, but because they were not married at the time. God. This just proves how much we've gotten better at being human beings since the 1960s. Like, th- yeah. think of think of this discrepancy. Imagine right now if you had, like, a cousin or something who was 16 and your aunt called you up. And they're like, oh, she's moving in with her new boyfriend. Yeah, he was the math teacher. He's, like, in his mid-20s. It's fine. You'd be like, wait, 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 hold on. What? <laughs> and this... in the 60s, they're like, eh, look how sweet it is. They're moving in together. This has happened, like... Twice that I can recall in my family's like greater church or school group of people that we know. And both times my mother turned to me and was like, absolutely not. Never. I don't know why her parents are allowing this. This is absurd. And I was just like, what? She's like, I'm not going to that wedding. I was just like, yes, mom. Yes. Because my mom is awesome. You figure figure being a math teacher, you'd pay a lot more attention to numbers, huh? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like this is the one guy that we're like, come on, you should know that that's smaller (laughs) than this. Now, the age of consent has fluctuated in history. Um. But just so you know, it was 16 in 1929, but was changed a couple decades later. In 1970, it was very much 18. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this, it's bad on multiple levels. Like it's it's legally bad for the time. It's morally bad for always. Yep. It's not good. Okay. Anyway. They end up living together for a couple years, uh, and Patricia goes into the art history program at UC Berkeley. Again, not surprising, considering how much their family had contributed to both that and archaeology. Yeah. Um, ha- at that point, like with the amount they had donated, she her application was just her name and said, this is what I would like to study. And then she just yes. handed it to somebody who immediately went, yes, ma'am, and then a red carpet rolled out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um they had an apartment near campus, and everything seemed to be pretty hunky-dory, uh, especially because at the time, her mother had just finished a tenure on the board of UC Regents, um, who at the time were actively opposing the free speech movement happening on the campus. Hmm. <laughs> Which, if you recall, we talked about this a little bit on the Manson episodes, where the students were in full revolution mode, yeah. and... Reagan, the governor, um, at the time was just like, the actor? how dare you? Yes. <laughs> the actor. <laughs> What's next? Uh, calm down for the gipper. Uh, so <laughs> he was just like, get it under control. And so the UC regents, who are the board of directors for the UC schools, uh, were tasked with kind of keeping it under control. And allegedly her mom, Catherine, was like, one of the biggest hard asses where she was just like these fucking teenage assholes. And so people hated her. It was a thing. It's going to come up again. Yeah, later. I get the other thing though, is I don't know how recently you've had to talk to a teenager, uh, but I had to talk to my cousins a, a couple of weeks ago. And I also feel like maybe we shouldn't let them have free speech. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't encounter teenagers often these days, except online when they are fans of my podcast. And then I do question some things. Yeah, right. 
<laughs> a little bit. I'm like, I'm happy you're here, but I'm, I'm concerned. Yeah, um, I was Twitch streaming and my cousin uh, let his 10-year-old brother watch my Twitch stream. And I was like, oh, wait, the sh- one where... The one where you did a live draw or a draw? Oh, God, no, 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 no. Not when I drew the horny boys. No, uh, the one when I played Dying Light. And then he was fucking backseat gaming. He was like, ugh, you're so shit at this game. And I was like, oh, fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you, 10-year-old. Yeah, it's harder to play video games when you have to remember to, like, pay taxes and shit. Yeah. (laughs) It's oppressive. (laughs) Anyway, at this point... Patricia was 19 and she and her boyfriend Stephen had been seeing each other for three years and they decided it was high time that they get married and her mother was thrilled finally so she listed their engagement announcement in the society pages of the San Francisco Examiner where her father worked I put that in quotation marks because he fully did the rich guy thing of they're like yeah he has a job technically as in he shows up here. Mm. But he's not like, yes, he does things, but most of the like real work happens with the people around him. Like he's not fully responsible for what's going on, yeah. but he does have an office here. Yeah, we call but those he also, shift managers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, he He also was notorious for like, I'm not coming in today. I'm going golfing. And they were just like, well, that changes nothing for us. So by all means, just golf fool. A couple years ago, we would call that presidential. Somebody that doesn't have a job and just shows up in an office. The other people around him take care of it or don't in the case of pandemics. And then he goes golfing. Yeah, that's uh, by the way, that's the other reason I fucking it was hard to play Dying Light is because it's a game where a pandemic ravages a country and the country's government has no care at all for any of the poor people and just leaves them to kind of fend for themselves, fighting for the most basic supplies like toilet paper and meat. And I was playing the game and was like, this is kind of sad. You know what? It just seems too outlandish. Too outlandish, but also I know I could survive that now. I've I've bathed in the fire (laughs) and I came out the other side. You're just fucking throwing bread at zombies. Just like, it's a crouton now. Bow. Yep. Yep. I, I had toilet paper and meat the whole time because I learned pretty quick that you could just contact restaurant supplies. Oh, yeah. I had I had toilet paper <laughs> and up? meat because you could just go to a Mexican grocery store and they're that fully too. Stocked. That too. We, we honestly immediately were just like, let's go to the ranch market mm-hmm. and we were fine. And then there were just lines outside of Trader Joe's. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. What, this, <laughs> this is why I'm going to survive this pandemic. Anyway. Patricia and Stephen are getting married. It's been announced. And according to Stephen, at the time, they were very happy. They weren't very involved in politics. And they were just kind of minding their own business, studying art history, doing whatever the hell they felt like doing. And some people have come forward to say that maybe Patricia was a little more politically motivated than he thought. Um, And some people have even alleged that she organized her kidnapping I don't super believe that because both her family, boyfriend, and friends at the time kind of agree that she wasn't necessarily super into politics at the time. And the people who organized the kidnapping don't claim to have contacted her previously at all. So, like, mm-hmm. all the people directly involved are like, no. Yeah, and, um, and that's pretty important so, when these people are openly talking about the murder that they committed. Like, they, <laughs> yeah. they are very, you can never accuse them of not being very transparent. 
Yeah. Also, could you imagine like a rich heiress organizing her own kidnapping? She's like, okay, now first of all, you're gonna have to wear something soft, like a cashmere. <laughs> maybe? Um, I get a lot of irritations, and then I'm going to need a lot of leg room in whatever the kidnapping vehicle is, because I like to wear heels, and I don't like to have to take them on and off when I get out of the vehicle. <laughs> lastly, what, how many, lastly, how many master bedrooms will the kidnapping suite have? <laughs> also, I am on the paleo diet, so if you could get me <laughs> some farm fresh salmon. Uh, so... Yeah, I, I don't believe she organized. Now, granted, for an heiress, she seems pretty down to earth. Their apartment's not super fancy. It's not in a great part of town. No. They're just, they're they're living within their means. They're just kind of getting by, laying low, being a student is what she's up to. It kind of sounds like she's like a Freddie Trump, like a Freddie Trump Jr. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, just like, yeah, that's my dad. He's kind of a dick. I don't really like him. I mean, I still vibe for his approval, but like, I just want to be here and like feel out what normal is supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, normal with her much older math teacher boyfriend. Yeah, normal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but speaking of the people who organized the kidnapping, let's get back to them. Yeah. Because as we know, they stay wild. So it's 1973. They've just killed Marcus Foster and announced it. And now they've got to be the Symbionese Liberation Army because that's what they told people they were. But here's the thing. They hadn't planned or organized anything beyond killing Marcus Foster. There was no thought really behind it. Mm They didn't even get the URL for Symbionese Liberation Army. It was already taken by somebody else. Yeah, they, they had not thought it through. They hadn't consulted with other activist groups. They're out on their own, in the middle of of being on the run, and they haven't even figured out what their deal is. <laughs> so at this point, DeFreeze comes up with the name, Symbionese Liberation Army. He bases it on the word symbiosis, basically between the students and the prisoners. And he chooses a symbol for their group. It is the seven-headed cobra. Each head symbolizes one of the tenets of Kwanzaa. Now, they end up stealing... Their actual, it, it is a symbol from traditional Sanskrit texts, but they kind of co-opt it. And then they co-opt the tenets of Kwanzaa, which are unity, self-determination, collective work and responsibility, cooperative economics, purpose, creativity, and faith, which again, great principles. Yeah. Not a, right. not a bad one among them. But at this point, we need to talk about Kwanzaa a little bit because... Maulana Karenga, Dr. Maulana Karenga, who was a professor and chairman of Africana Studies at California State University, is the creator of Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa was created in 1966 to be a response to the Watts riots in Los Angeles and as kind of a unifier for African-Americans in the community so that they can have kind of a unifying holiday because Christians have Christmas, uh, Jews have have Hanukkah. They wanted something to unify them as a, a people. And so Dr. Karenga researched African harvest celebrations and actually combined a number of them from different tribes. So uh, there's some Zulu traditions in it. There are uh, traditions from other portions of West Africa. And then most of the wording and 
practices are described in Swahili. Uh, celebrations often include singing and dancing, storytelling, poetry reading, African drumming, and feasting. And as part of the holiday, Dr. Karenga created the seven guiding principles that were to be discussed during the week of Kwanzaa. This is kind of similar to other, I would say, seasonal holidays. Um, with Christmas, you have Advent. With Hanukkah, you have the eight candles. This gives, or the eight nights, I should say. Mm-hmm. This gives them kind of a similar analog of these are the things that we're meditating on and taking time to think about during this time, during this celebration. And it is seven days long. Uh, and each day a candle is lit. So on the first night, that center candle, the black candle of unity is lit. Uh, and the final day of Kwanzaa is the feast. But essentially it's this symbolic holiday of we as African Americans need to unify and become our own culture. Um, but again, this is happening in 1966. Do you guys remember where Donald DeFreeze was in 1966? I thought, yeah. Jail? Yeah, yeah, he was. Um, so here's the deal. Kwanzaa in 1966 is being developed in a university. He's learning about it from white university students. Oh, boy. Right. And then taking what he has learned from those white university students and then turning back around to his group of white university students that he has now collected into a mini cult and is like, I'm going to teach y'all some shit and turns around and teaches them about Kwanzaa. (laughs) Again, this is the Marge Simpson piano lesson theory, yes. which is you just stay one lesson ahead of the kid you have to teach, yep. and you can give piano lessons. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I just want to point out, I so as an aside, my mom worked in a school district, and so I have like a, a pretty extensive knowledge of what teachers are actually like. That's just how all teachers are, by the way. <laughs> I used to have teachers that got mad at us for reading ahead in books and shit, and I found out that's why. It's because curriculums have to change, so they're like, oh, these fucking kids, I gotta fucking read. You just stay one chapter ahead. That's it. That's all teachers do. I mean, at, my mom is a teacher and definitely is way more than one chapter ahead of people. Oh, your mom is a good but, teacher. I'm not talking yeah, about good yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the average teacher. Paige, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize until I was out of school that the reason I watched so many videos during class is because my teachers like to fucking party, dude. If you get too hungover, you show up and you're just like, all right, everybody, we're going to watch The Land Before Time. <laughs> yeah, I, I have some concerns about your schooling, Armando. Yeah, the public education system is fucking flawed, Paige. <laughs> <laughs> you don't pay people enough, they're just going to go get drunk every night to forget the pain of trying to teach people like me who don't give a shit. That's fair. Uh, now... Along with all of these new tenets and symbols that they're now printing on flyers and and like pamphlets, they also adopt the phrase, death to the fascist insect that preys on the life of the people, which I got to tell you, nice ring to it. That's pretty fucking badass. Right. It sounds so fucking badass. And they, 
they're later as they go because they keep it for a long time. They're gonna start like shouting this as they're firing machine guns, and you're just like, "Damn, I know this is not good, but it's a cool look. Somebody should make a Tarantino movie like this. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild." Yeah, I was say this is like this is like when uh, Samuel L. Jackson just kept quoting that one biblical verse before he <laughs> killed everybody in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. It's powerful. It's got a nice vibe to it. It does. Now they have a name. They have symbols, they have a credo, and they kind of have a plan. So what's next? Recruit, of course. Cut to Bill and Emily Harris and their friend Angela. Now, remember, they ran into Joe Romino and Russ Little at activist rallies, and the five of them had become fast friends. So it didn't initially strike them as weird when Joe and Russ told them that they wanted to introduce them to a new activist group that they had been working with. And they were a little vague about it. And Emily and Angela weren't fully on board. Bill was suspicious as well. But then Joe and Russ asked them if they wanted to meet the people that killed Marcus Foster. Now, fuck. they had initially thought it was the Black Panthers because they hadn't heard the press release. And little did they know that the Panthers were furious with the SLA. Yeah, I'm not sure why they would think that in the first place because the Black Panthers, who were like... A- quite a political force in Oakland at that time. Like, they would absolutely not assassinate a black leader who was the first black school board president. It might have been just because of, like, all of the misinformation going on, maybe. Could be, yeah. My my explanation for a lot of this and a lot of what happens later on is it's white people not... White people thinking they know best and not actually taking the time to understand issues. And instead of supporting community organizers that are already doing the work they're inserting themselves and it's this idea of white saviorism within a a quote-unquote black nationalist organization but it's really just donald defreeze that's the only real tie Mm. to black activism that they have but in their minds they are a black activist organization despite only having like one black guy um (laughs) and so i think for them they're like absolutely we want to meet these people like this is the work we've been doing like we want to get on the ground boots on the ground let's do it i just realized they're not a black activist group they're a donald defreeze activist group yes yes they well and and it's very interesting where once we get into the later parts of the story the news does start to call them a cult finally and that's what they are that's what i would call them and it's interesting to see a lot of people be like, yeah, it's an activist group. I'm like, no, no, no. It's it's a bunch of people following this one guy who loves pipe bombs. It's a cult. It's a weird cult. It's a weird <laughs> yeah. one, but it's a cult. Yeah, this is like when... Uh, I Okay, so I, I work for a marketing company sometimes writing like scripts and stuff, and we just got a client that is like... It has a huge... Uh, uh, like Latino fan base, right? And so they all they they all like look to me and we're like, Armando, you're gonna be the one that's gonna like illuminate like the culture and like tell us the right things to say and like all this stuff. And I was just sitting there like, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Armando Torres, very well known <laughs> mastermind uh, and master of of Latino culture. Yeah. You know, it'd be great as if he started doing the Donald DeFreeze thing and just taking things about himself and claiming they were Latino things. He's like, let me tell you about Latinos. They love Sigourney <laughs> Weaver. <laughs> you know what? I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my god. Yeah, Latino culture. I will say one thing that I do know for sure is that uh machismo is like a a, a very big thing, you know, like like you got to be like a man, but behind every like mm-hmm. p- powerful man is a very strong matriarch <laughs> that runs the family. <laughs> it's true. With slippers. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in southern San Diego. I got hit by plenty of oh, slippers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the weapons of the people. My grandma used a pipe chunkla. <laughs> a pipe? A pipe chunkla? Yeah, it's like a pipe bomb, but for my people. But for your head. Yeah. Anyway, that's um, all I mean is it's just like, yeah, just because somebody is from one culture doesn't mean that they have a deep understanding of all of it. And I'm not to say like, oh, he wasn't black enough. I'm saying that he was kind of a nut job who carried bombs around just like I'm in his pocket. Yeah, exactly. Just like I'm a stoned idiot who thinks that if, if Paige mentioned the term balls and I couldn't stop laughing, maybe I'm not the <laughs> expert in like cultural appreciation that I should should be i let me put it to you this way i think there's a reason that a lot of the other black activist organizations didn't fuck with this exactly like he's he's the sean king of his time (laughs) like they don't want anything to do with it now they agree to meet them because at this point, they figured that the SLA must have had a reason to do what they did, and maybe violence was the option. Like, they must know something we don't. So they agreed to meet with them. And Joe and Russ literally gooned them to meet with DeFreeze. Now, if you remember from our Synanon episode, gooning is where they, like, hire people to kidnap you to, like, take you to a second location without knowing where it is. They get there, where they meet Donald DeFreeze... Patty, other Patty, this is uh, Patty Ms. Moon Soltzik. She goes by Ms. Moon. We'll end up calling her that for most of the rest of the episode. Nancy, and they've got blindfolds, whole nine. But when they get there, they sit there and listen to DeFreeze passionately defend his decision to kill Foster. And Bill, Emily, and Angela kind of saw where he was coming from, but also thought that he seemed... A little extreme. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They weren't fully convinced yet. And they left the meeting thinking that they would maybe work a little bit more with Joe and Russ, but they weren't quite ready to join the SLA. And they also realized that there was infighting within the SLA about the murder. Joe and Russ had not been in favor of the murder and didn't think it should have happened. And the other three, DeFreeze, Patty, and Nancy, did. They were fully, like, the full speed ahead, more murders if possible. Yeah. Um, and DeFreeze really, really emphasized in that meeting that the left was ineffectual and the only path forward was violence. <sighs> that's, that's like Hitler's exact argument, by the way, which is not a great thing to... All right, yeah, fine, it's cool. It's... Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, so Bill, Emily, and Angela leave, and they're talking to Joe and Russ, and they're like, yeah, okay, maybe. They give the same kind of answer of, like, I don't know if you've ever had a neighbor, like, my my neighbor is a Jehovah's Witness, and she's like, we should pray sometime. And I'm like, yeah, sure, sometime. <laughs> and, and then you just never call them back about it. Uh, that's kind of what they do. They're like, yeah, sure, it sounds really cool. Um, yeah. We're going to go home now. Uh, and so 
they go home. But unfortunately, the choice would kind of be made for them. Because on January 10th, 1974, Joe and Russ were headed back to the SLA safe house in Concord, California. And they'd been running errands all day, picking up pamphlets that they had printed, you know, uh, stickers, flyers, handouts, and picking up guns that they had had altered. Which, if you remember from a Ruby Ridge, it's a crime. Yeah, it's illegal. If you make a shot-off shotgun, technically that's a weapon of mass destruction. That's a yeah. that is a, that is the legal term for it, and it's a thing I learned from watching MTV's Catfish. Yep. Now, were they doing this to uh, shorten the length of the barrels, or were they making these semi-automatics fully automatic? They were making semi-automatics fully automatic, mm. and uh, but also had a few that had shortened length. Like it's a van full of myriad of guns, mm. um, all at the direction of DeFreeze, because remember, Joe and Russ are students; they're not fancy gun people um but they get pulled over in a van full of flyers that they were going to use to recruit because they were literally going to go flyer and be like we're the people that killed marcus foster do you want to join us oh my god they're not great at crime hold on i so they get pulled i don't want to i just before we move on because i have been stuck on a phrase that you just said which is the phrase fancy gun people which (laughs) This makes me think of there, a fucking tea party where they're like, mm, yes, you know, this this chamomile pairs nicely with my nine. <laughs> I always fire with my pinky out. Um, <laughs> just, I have never hit a target in my life, but I look damn good doing it. Uh, I, by that, I mean, they're not super experienced yeah, with firearms. For sure. Not nearly as experienced as DeFreeze. Absolutely, yeah. Who, whose yeah. entire life revolves around making things into weapons that should not be weapons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they get pulled over with a VW van full of guns. <sighs> and originally it was just for like a registration check. Like it wasn't, they weren't being pulled over because they had guns. <laughs> they, they were pulled over for a routine traffic stop and they ran their IDs and then came back to the passenger side of the van. So like they had, the police had started on the driver's side. They came back to the passenger side to hand the IDs back. And as they did, they saw what was in the back seat, which was literally giant crates of oh guns. my god get a wow. fucking blanket you idiot yeah well i mean these are the same people who are going out with pieces of paper saying hey we did this crime yeah, you know so what like, maybe join us fucking, yeah, yeah. fair point i don't know why i'm yeah <laughs> so the cops immediately are like um what the fuck he backs away from the car joe gets out of the car oh no. And draws a gun. He and the cop face off. They both fire. They both miss. Wow. He takes off on foot. The cop calls for backup. They apprehend him. And it turns out that the gun that he had tried to fire at the cop was the murder weapon from the Marcus Foster murder. You got a crate of guns and you picked that one? They did not ditch that murder weapon. He had it in his hand. So even though he is not the one who committed that murder by all accounts, he is now tried for that murder because he's found with it on his person and a whole pile of pamphlets from the group that took responsibility for that murder. So like... 
all signs wow. point to them being guilty of that murder. And this is so stupid because like in California, I don't know if you guys know this, but in California, it's a law where if you and a cop shoot at each other and you both miss, it's just a draw and you get to go free. Yeah. It <laughs> cancels each other out. It's like if they try and hang you and you survive, then you get to get yeah, out of jail. Yeah, which is why yeah. I'm not afraid because I got this thick ass neck. <laughs> thick neck boy. Mm. So... Joe and Russ are charged with the murders and the SLA decides that now they have to go on the run (laughs) because now everybody's looking for them. And they were only a few blocks from the safe house where they got arrested. So DeFreeze and Nancy tried to burn the safe house down, but they're not good at crime. And so they dumped 20 gallons of gasoline all over the house but they left the garage door and all the windows closed. Oh, so they couldn't get any air. They couldn't get any air. It ran out of oxygen and the fire burned out too fast, leaving literally a house full of evidence connecting them to both the murders and the people that they had just apprehended. <laughs> You're too dumb to burn down your own house. Yeah, yes. people do this shit on accident. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Here's what blew my mind. All it would have taken, one pipe bomb. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> fucking right. Yeah. Also, this is, by the way, this is the 1970s. This is before, like, double-pane windows and yeah. out one-hour fire-rated doors and sprinkler systems. Like, this is just Northern California redwood waiting oh, to Oh, yeah, burn. and just covered in yeah. asbestos and fucking lead paint. It's all yeah. just, fuck, a death yeah. trap. and... And fucking flammable synthetic fabrics because it's the 70s. It's the 70s. (laughs) Like there's polyester everywhere. Oh, man. So they're on the run and they reach out to the only other people that know their identity. Bill, Emily and Angela. Basically letting them know that they're either in or out because their friends have just been wrongfully charged with murder. I know. Sort of wrongfully. (laughs) Now, as the police search the house, because not much burned, they find a list of potential kidnapping or murder victims, like a hit list. And on that list is a name with a copy of an engagement announcement from the San Francisco Examiner, Patricia Campbell Hurst. The police didn't warn anyone on that list. Oh, my God. Yeah. And what they didn't realize, or they probably realized, but didn't do anything about it. uh, The SLA had been casing and stalking these people for months. They had used the information from the article and easily found out where Patricia lived. They knew where her apartment was. And according to Bill, they had talked DeFreeze down from murder to kidnapping. (laughs) Yes, you know what that's like. That's like when you when you're out with your buddy late at night and you've been drinking all night, and he's like, "Let's go to TJ," and you're like, "Well, let's just go to Chili's and have another beer." Like, with, <laughs> I don't technically want to even go there and have another beer. I'm done for the night. But if it's if if your bet is TJ, let's strike somewhere in I'm the middle. I'm gonna just say right now, I like the Chili's. It's like it's TJ of America because they got the fajitas. <laughs> yeah. I can buy honey chipotle chicken crispers mm-hmm. and Irish goodbye on my butt. I can say the fajitas because uh. it sounds like a fireworks that go. Pop, 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 pop. You're a good friend, Bobby. <laughs> I love you, buddy. <laughs> We're going to TJ. Yeah. 
Now, part of the reason that the Harrises and Angela Atwood had talked him down from murder to kidnapping mm-hmm. is because, remember, they're just theater kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, by the way, kidnapping is much more dramatic. The kid, that's exactly why they do it. Because, in their minds... Because, again, it's guerrilla theater, and they had to train all those monkeys. So, like, they yeah. got skills. <laughs> yep. No. It's, it's guerrilla with a U, theater. Yeah. They think that kidnapping is going to be better for, quote, propaganda. Like, it's going to be a better news story to kidnap somebody. And also, they think that it has the same shock value as killing somebody, but it's not as scary, and it's not as permanent like it's not something they can't come back from and so this is when they start to narrow down that list and they target Patricia because she's an heiress and she is as far as they know quote-unquote an innocent and they thought that this was a metaphor for their innocent comrades in custody Mm. but nobody really got the metaphor so their whole thing was that we're going you took two of ours we're going to take one of yours and then we want to exchange and get our two back and then you can have your heiress back by i'm sorry just for my own benefit by by the innocence that they had been arrested you mean the people complicit in a murder that just altered all of those guns illegally and then shot at a police officer and ran away right Okay. Yeah, yeah, I don't see your problem. Okay, yeah, wait, you know wait, what? That's, wait, fine. that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> they, yes, as far as they were concerned, those were revolutionary acts that were necessary, which then made them innocent. I disagree, uh, uh, but that's their thinking. And in their minds, their the Hearst family is the enemy of the people by virtue of the fact that they have massive amounts of wealth and in their eyes are not contributing back to society. They don't necessarily recognize how much of that is philanthropic organizations or how much of it is tied up in businesses. They don't understand the workings of it. They see them as they're rich, people are still poor, so by virtue of them having that money, they are the enemy. Which, think about a Jeff Bezos, I'm not fully not on your side. If you're somebody who's like skating on taxes by hiding things in offshore accounts and not contributing to society, then yeah, I got a problem. Like, you know, I get it, but let's not kidnap people over it. Yeah. Yeah. And how often does the whole like prisoner exchange thing work? I feel like that's like a really, really low bar in terms of success. Well, we'll get into it (laughs) because it's even lower than you think. So (laughs) they case... Patricia Hearst's house for weeks weeks and they realize that there's no security and there's only one front door there's easy access she's blocked from the street and so the entire SLA rolls up to her house armed to the teeth no one even sees them approach the door they knock on the door and ask to use the phone They barge their way in. They tie them both up. They're beating the crap out of Stephen Weed. And DeFreeze, who is with them, it's one of the few times he's like out of the house, he heard the name Hearst and assumed that these were the rich Hearsts in this tiny Berkeley apartment with hardly any (laughs) furniture. And so he starts shouting at them, he's going to rob them, where's the safe? Tell me where the safe is. And they're like, 
not only do we not have a safe because this isn't a cartoon, <laughs> um, we're not the rich ones. Like we're we're four generations removed from the crazy rich ones. Our parents aren't even the rich ones. Like we're richer than most people for right. sure. But I don't have access to like castle money. What the fuck are you thinking? He doesn't understand that. He has no clue. Because remember, he has spent the last decade and change making bombs and getting arrested with a detached view of reality. So he has no understanding of the fact that she does not have access to these wide, giant Scrooge McDuck piles of money in her modest Berkeley apartment. Yeah, he doesn't understand anything about their life. He's looking at Steven like, hey man, why aren't you trying to run away or anything? This is so... Where's your shooting base? Fun fact about that. Uh, Steven is trying to run away at this point (laughs) because he is being beaten nearly to death. And so he takes off to try and run and they end up knocking him down twice, uh, literally kicking in like his ribs. They do break some bones. Oh my God. Um, And as they're beating up Steven, he's too distracted to realize that they have already started to remove Patty from the house because she was the target the whole time. Uh, they get Patty out and that leaves DeFreeze in the apartment with Steven. And again, DeFreeze is like, where's the safe? And Steven's like, take whatever you want. I don't care. Yeah. Like nothing in this house is more important than our lives. Take I'm a it. math teacher. The only gold I have is a gold star. Yeah. <laughs> and as he kind of starts looking around the house to see where quote unquote the safe is, uh, Steven jumps up and manages to get out their back door through a patio and like over a patio gate and runs to the neighbors to try and get help. Meanwhile, the rest of the group gets out to the car. They've carried Patty all the way out and they try to put her in the trunk. But as they're lifting her into the trunk, the trunk closes and locks. So they have to set her down, go get the keys and she runs away. But there's a problem. Her hands are her hands and feet are still tied and she's blindfolded. So she runs away into her own garage because she doesn't know where anything oh is. God. So they find her within a couple minutes. They unlock the trunk, get her into the trunk. And by this point, Steven's making a lot of noise running around and he can't see much of anything because his face is covered in blood. And the neighbors are looking out their windows and seeing a bloodied man banging on their door that they don't recognize as Steven because he has been beaten so badly. And they're like, oh, we're not opening that door. Further, as the neighbors start to look out the windows, the getaway car, which is Nancy and Ms. Moon, start firing at the apartment building, just wildly firing rounds indiscriminately. God. So all the neighbors are just like, fuck this, and go back into their houses. Steven can't get anyone to answer the door. And by the time he gets back to the apartment and the cars have taken off, Patty is gone. Now, I don't know. uh, Now, if you guys are thinking like, wow, that's a really weird reaction that the cops aren't there or anything. Just understand that this is like, I looked up where they were kidnapped from. This is a pretty average night in Southside Berkeley. Like this, this part where they're in, like there's a very rich areas near the campus that are over on the east side and on the north side and even some nice stuff downtown on the west. But the south side of Berkeley, 
literally shares a border with Oakland. And it's a really bad neighborhood. I don't know what it was like in 74, but I lived there my entire time uh, going to school there. I lived on the south side. And I, I remember how quickly you get accustomed to insane levels of violence. I was once walking up a street two blocks away from where this happened, main drag, and uh, there's a cop car ironically parked in front of a donut yeah. shop. Not going to lie. I can't write this. He's parked <laughs> in front of a donut shop. And I'm walking up the street, and across the street, I see this guy get stopped by a, literally just a gang. There's just a gang outside. This guy's walking down the sidewalk. They stop him. There's a brief confrontation. One of them grabs his arms, and the other guy starts beating the shit out of him. And I'm looking, and there's a cop across the street from where this is happening. I run up and knock on the cop's window, and I'm like, hey, hey, are you going to do anything? He looks over, looks up at me, looks over at the dude who has now gotten thrown to the ground as being kicked in the head and the body. He looks up, sighs, doesn't get out of his car, drives his car now just across the street. He just kind of merges across lanes, drives across the street with his lights on, casually gets out of the car. This entire time, a dude is getting his head stomped on the sidewalk oh and just kind of casually gets up and he goes, what's going on here? And I realized... <laughs> I realize, like, even the cops, like, it just becomes this subtle thing where it's like, you're going to hear gunshots, you're going to watch people get the shit beat out of them on a regular basis. Like, I can't tell you how many people I saw just, like, get cold cocked and then have their pockets rifled yep. through in the middle of the street. Like, it is not a place where this is an uncommon thing. Yeah, and you just get used yeah. to it. I remember uh, I talked about it on, like, social media and stuff, but I was uh, at my old apartment. I was doing laundry and I watched a guy get shot and my, it, like, I saw him get shot and I was like, oh, fuck. I got to switch my fucking laundry real quick. I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah, you get yeah it sucks. It. It's a terrible, but like I, when you said that like, they're knocking on the door, he's bloody. They're hearing gunshots. They're probably just like, all right, well, it'll be over in an hour. So let's just, it's the college kids. They're having, <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. You mentioned that there weren't any cops there because as their caravan of getaway cars starts to leave, a cop passes them on the other side. They think that the cop is responding to the gunshots, but they haven't been radioed, radioed in yet. It's been too yeah. soon. And so the cop stops them on the road, the front car, because they didn't have their lights on. The cop has them turn their lights on, and as they turn their lights on, the officer gets a radio that there had been gunshots right where they're coming from and he lets them go so that he can respond to the gunshots. Oh my god. Wow. And that's where we'll pick up next week. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> god damn it. Everyone in this story is a fucking moron. It's pretty yeah. wild. It's it's one of those stories where you're just like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. <laughs> like what are you saying right now? The most now? <laughs> accurate thing I've heard this entire episode is that they described uh, uh, Donald DeFreeze as uh, a little bit extreme. And I agree with that. <laughs> Donald DeFreeze is extreme in the way that like Mountain Dew is extreme, where it's like cool to look at, got a couple cool slogans, but ultimately terrible for you and will ruin every part of your life. Yes, absolutely. The most, uh, the most accurate thing I thought in this episode was that we finally... I'll put our cards on the table and admitted that Sigourney Weaver was Hell hot as fuck. Yeah. That, that, to me, 
Hero. To me, that's been the that's been the underlying thing, just right yeah. underneath the surface the whole time. Nobody yeah. wants to Sigourney, talk about it. I know you fucking listen to this show, dude. I know you're a fucking <laughs> fan, dude. I know it. I know you're part of our Patreon that you can find at Patreon.com/slash Colt Podcast. Hit me up, girl. What's good? Sigourney can get it absolutely. Even <laughs> now, as as a grown older hot lady, here mm-hmm. for it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yep. Uh, this episode is uh, brought to you by Sigourney Weaver. Uh, she actually sent in this note. Oh, here we go. Here, let me let me just, uh, let me just yeah. read this. All right. Dear Armando, you're hot as fuck, dude. <laughs> Love Sigourney Weaver. Wow, that's really nice. Um, <laughs> that's wow. I'm jealous. That's yeah, great. Good yeah. for you. I don't even fucking need you guys anymore. I'm gonna go fucking hang out with Sigourney. <laughs> anyway now this episode is actually brought to you by our patreon uh patreon.com slash cult podcast you can find a bunch of tears rewards there uh go check it out um bobby where can uh where can people find you and your sigourney weaver loving ass you can go find me on uh, Facebook, Robert Timothy, or Science Faction, and of course on all the podcatchers. Look up Science Faction, where that good uh, purple and black uh, logo, and I think there's blue in there too. I'm not even <laughs> sure. Uh, and uh, every week we talk about all of the the recent published scientific articles in all of the major scientific journals. But we add dick jokes, and as of this episode, Sigourney. Hell Weaver. yeah. That's super great. Go check out those shows. Uh, they're so much fun to listen to. Um, or go check out Science Faction. It's so much fun to listen to. Uh, hey, I'm going to say, if you want to find me on social media, you super can. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, at Mondo Does Stuff. That's M-A-N-D-O Does Stuff. Uh, I also work at Rooster Teeth and Funhouse, uh, so go check out our stuff. Every Tuesday, we stream live, and then the podcast comes out everywhere on Thursday. Uh, yeah, love you so much. Mwah. That one was for Sigourney Weaver, by the way. Uh, hey, Sigourney, what's up? It's your girl. Um, I will be... Th- we're recording this a little bit ahead of time, peek behind the curtain. Uh, so I have a number of stand-up dates in LA and San Diego Uh, coming up some are roast battle some are regular I will be putting those on social media so if you want if you are in the area want to see me or Armando live uh check out social media we'll be posting stuff there you can find that at Paige Wesley on Twitter or at Rampage Wesley on Instagrams uh, and TikTok. Also, go check out Paige on uh, Horror Virgin and uh, Romancing the Pod, two also very good yes. shows. We've pitched you so many shows to listen to. If you don't go out and fucking get them right now, then Sigourney Weaver will never love you. <laughs> and you wouldn't want that. No. Everyone needs a little bit of Sigourney yeah, in their life. We all do. That's why I watch Alien every night before I go to sleep. God, I fucking love oh, Alien. So I like Aliens even better, though, because it's Sigourney mm. Weaver and Kyle Reese, and my Terminator love and heart is mm. just, I'm all in it. So all good. It. Uh, hey, if you want to f- listen to the show in a new place, can we suggest Rooster Teeth? cock a doodle doo thank you uh rooster teeth has a bunch of really awesome content you can watch shows like last laugh you can watch uh uh uh, ruby uh they got a new show coming out soon uh, called camp betrayal which is super super fun it's got my good friend charlotte uh charlotte mcgrath from funhouse it's also got my mortal enemy blaine gibson the tiny fuck 
Um, also, I'm in it for a small cameo, and I can't tell you any more about it, and you will enjoy it. Um, we, they've also, on Rooster Teeth, got a bunch of podcasts. They've got uh, Good Morning from Hell, Red Web, Black Box Down, uh, the RT podcast, so many other just like amazing shows. So go to roosterteeth.com or get the Rooster Teeth app on your Amazon Fire Stick, your Xbox, your Roku television, or your mobile device. And if you want to follow our show, you can. Uh, I, I don't know why I keep doing it like that. I just It's like presenting a problem and then fixing it. Uh, follow us on Instagram at Colt Podcast. Or on Twitter at Colt Podcast Show. You can also send us an email to coltpodcastshow at gmail.com. Or if you want to send us a list of people that you want to kidnap but won't because we don't want to be accessories. <laughs> You could send that to 3756 West Avenue 40, Sweet K, number 237, like, like the, the Shining. Shining, Los Angeles, California, 90065. The only accessory I want to be is Sigourney Weaver's arm candy. Mm. Mm. And I think for this, I'm going to say, don't drink anything Donald DeFries hands you. It's yeah. probably cyanide. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and don't drink the Kool-Aid. Bye. 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 Thank you.